Our scripture today is from 1 John 4, 1 through 21. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than the word who he is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved, but God that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we know and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God. Did I just read that? And God abides in him. By this is, my finger's right here. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also we are in this world. Therefore, excuse me, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks, Gabe. Uh, That's a massive passage. There we go. Good morning. How are we doing? Based on based on my track record of preaching 60 minutes the last time I was up here, and then forgetting offering when I was doing announcements, I'm really shocked that they actually asked me to come back up here and do this. Uh, but I'm thankful, grateful for it. Um, 
Yeah, with that, that's a good reminder. I have a timer, so I won't go 60 minutes this time. Uh, There we go. So yeah, I'm really grateful to be here and thankful to for Tim and the team to let me uh, be up here and preach. We're going to be in 1 John 4 this morning. As Tanner said, this will be our last time in 1 John, at least for now. Uh, and I too am really excited to hear Tim next week and to, to listen to that. Been missing that brother for sure. Um, so I don't know what kind of Christmas traditions y'all have. Um, but I have a very strict rule of no Christmas music in my house before Thanksgiving. My, my loving wife and my oldest daughter uh, very happily ignore that rule uh, in my house. But one of our, our favorite traditions is we watch uh, Christmas movies. We have a long list of great Christmas movies that we like to watch. And uh, we kind of work our way through them. And, and recently, one has been added to that list. And it's one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time. Uh, and it's Elf. I don't know if you guys are fans of that movie, uh, but it is great. There is a scene in that movie where Buddy the Elf, uh, who's played by Will Ferrell, right? Great, a great character in this whole movie. He's in a department store, and he finds himself there when they're getting ready for the holiday season, right? They're decorating, they're doing all this stuff, and he hears that Santa is going to be coming to this department store, and he gets overly excited, like uber excited, and he's, he spends the entire night decorating and like going all out Christmas and and the after spending the entire night doing that and just uh, exhausting all of his Christmas creativity the morning comes and Santa arrives but to Buddy's horror it is not the real Santa and the scene like bursts into chaos as as Buddy tries to confront this fraud of a Santa who he says smells like beef and cheese and is sitting on a throne of lies, right? And uh, it's, it's epic, it's chaotic, and I love it. Um, and while this movie is, is excellent and super funny, and it's very quickly made it to like near the top of the list for my favorite Christmas movies, um, there's one thing about that movie that we all know. And I think most of the kids have left. All the Santas are frauds, Right? There is not a real Santa. And if you didn't know that, I'm sorry to spoil that for you. Um, but yeah, maybe you should have had a conversation with your parents at some point. Um, but yeah, what we're going to see this morning, though, in 1 John 4, is that John warns us to not be deceived. There are teachers out there that are trying to teach a false Jesus or a false gospel right? And they're, they're trying to deceive us in this way. And so John warns us of this. And so what we're going to see as we walk through this entire chapter this morning is that knowing the true Jesus will lead us to a life in love and a life of love. And so just like how Buddy, his entire life was impacted and influenced and focused on the fact that he knew the real Santa. Our life should be drastically impacted by knowing the true Jesus. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 
Uh, we're also going to be jumping around to a couple other passages, so make sure you mark that with a marker or finger, or if it's on an app, do that. If you don't have a Bible, we do have a few Bibles over there on the table. We would love for you to grab one and take it home. It can be a gift to you from us at the church. Uh, but let me pray, and we will jump into this passage. Father God, this morning, so thankful for who you are, thankful for your presence this morning. I'm thankful for uh, just how you've worked uh, in my life this week and uh, shown me some truths through this passage. And God, this morning I pray, I pray that that would be true today, that Holy Spirit, you would move through us here, that you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to seeing the true Jesus, maybe recognizing some places where we're being deceived. But God, and if, we, if there's someone in here, if, none of us, if some of us have not actually met the true Jesus, I pray that you would make that happen this morning, that you would introduce yourself to us, and that we would be moved by that truth and by who you are. Christ, we love you, and I praise you in your glorious name. Amen. So Tanner mentioned last week about this book, this letter that John has written, that he, he circles several theologies throughout it. He kind of circles several themes. He doesn't kind of, he doesn't start at A and work his way to Z, but he, he has two or three points that he kind of just loops around. And, and each time he loops around, he adds a little bit more and he goes a little bit deeper. And one of the things that we see uh, him doing in this is that he, he has a theology that he'll introduce and then a test, like a moral test that he will give for that theology. Like a, a way he'll say, here's the truth that you need to know, and here's how that truth will be evident in your life. And we see that kind of in this circular theme as we're going through. And so we're going to look here, first off, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. See, John recognizes that even in the few short years and decades since Christ has ascended, since he left his disciples and the Holy Spirit came down, there have been many who have twisted and distorted the message of Jesus. Some have sought to discredit Jesus completely, and others have tried to take that power and that popularity for their own gain. And that's happened just in the few years since Jesus left. So then our, the question for us naturally then becomes, how do we recognize these false teachers? How do we recognize them? And John gives us a simple test here. Verse 2 and 3, he says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. And again, I don't want to preach for 60-some minutes, so we're not even going to touch the whole Antichrist thing this morning. But it's there. Maybe you can talk about it in your small groups later. But what I want us to see is that he gives us this test, right? He says, those who do not confess the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... Are, are those who do not, are those who are the ones who are teaching a false gospel. They're teaching a false 
Jesus. So the true teachers are those who confess the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Essentially, those who teach the gospel teach the truth. So we look at that, we're like, we need to ask the question of, do we know the gospel? Do we know the gospel? It would be easy for us in this room to assume that we all do. It's easy for us to assume the question is, yes, we know the gospel. However, we must continually be reminded of the gospel. Even Paul, throughout all of his letters, he, is, he takes time to remind his readers of the gospel. These churches where he spent sometimes months and even years with, he writes to them and says, hey, let me remind you of the gospel. And those of us who maybe have never heard the gospel or have been walking in the gospel for a long time all need to be reminded of what the gospel is. John kind of points it out this way in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And while, yes, the gospel is the love of God, as John states, I feel like we might need to flesh it out even further for us to fully grasp the beauty and the clarity of the gospel. So this is how I explain the gospel. From conception, all men and women rebel against the only holy, perfect, and righteous God. This rebellion or sin has fractured our relationship with God and justly brought his wrath and condemnation upon us. Seeing our inability to make it right or to fix our broken and sinful state and compelled by his great love for us, God sent himself in the person of his son who came to earth, lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we should have died. In so doing, he took on the full wrath of God and satisfies God's righteousness and justice by being the propitiation of our sins. He then rose from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan, and all who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth will be made right before God and made his eternal children. That's the gospel. There's so much more to it than just the love of God, but that love of God was compelled because of our broken and sinful state. And we need to understand this. And we understand this because of the way of what we see throughout all of Scripture. That it starts with our perfection and our brokenness and then works through as God intervenes on our behalf to redeem us and make us his children, and ultimately one day will redeem all of creation, making it new and perfect again. We've, I've said it, and John has said it in this passage here. He, John uses this term propitiation. It's in verse 10, but it's not the first time that he's used this word. He uses it also in chapter 2, verse 2. And so I think it'd be uh, good for us to kind of look through this and see what that means. In verse, chapter 2, verse 2, he says he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but only, but also the sins of the whole world. 
You see, the idea of propitiation is that God's holiness requires justice or, and reconciliation. There had to be a sacrifice or a payment made to appease God and his righteousness. John shows us that it was God's love that made this sacrifice. Old Testament, they would bring lambs and, stuff and different things to the temple to do a sacrifice, but those were just a picture and an empty promise of what would be. The ultimate sacrifice came in God himself on the cross. Theologian John Stott says it this way, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to be the propitiation. And God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it on his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. My elementary grammar school teacher would hate that sentence or that paragraph right there. But the idea is that God is the one who saw our need, saw our desperate uh, state and said, they can't fix themselves. I have to go do it for them. I have to appease myself in my own sacrifice. Stott kind of clarifies it this way when he says, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself and for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. There's that substitution. Theological term for that is the substitutionary atonement. Right? God, where we were trying to be God, God came down and said, I'll become man and die for them. So, essentially, that was a long way to say the gospel is essentially the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to save his beloved. And if this is the true gospel, we're like, okay, I get it. I understand it. How then can I be deceived? If that's it, if all I got to understand is that we're sinful, Jesus came and he died for us and rose from the dead and saves us if we confess and believe, what are, where's the deception come? How can we miss that? It seems pretty simple and straightforward, right? But John seems to indicate that deception could come fairly easily. He wouldn't take time in this passage to warn us if the deception wasn't a real threat. And yet he does. He takes at least six verses to say, hey, be careful. There are false teachers out there. Know the true spirits. Know the truth. Know the real Jesus. Know the real gospel. For us, it's easy to spot false spirits, spirits that outright deny or defy the gospel. It's easy for us to say, yeah, they've rejected Jesus completely. Therefore, they aren't, they aren't true, true teachers. They aren't the true gospel. They're teaching a false spirit. So what we must see then 
is that there is something that is just slightly off. You see, in, in Genesis chapter 3, the, uh, the serpent comes and whispers in Eve's ear and doesn't completely outright lie to her, but he takes the truth and makes it just a little off. There's just a slight variation in what he teaches, and that's how we are deceived. There are teachers out there today that teach a gospel that sounds true, but is just slightly off. It's just a degree to the left or to the right. In today's society, I recognize that there are three main teachings that we primarily come across within our culture. So I want to look at those this morning. The first teaching that we see in our culture that we kind of have to recognize as a a slight variation of the gospel is this teaching of freedom from holiness. I think this one is very prominent in the world around us, in our culture at large, this freedom from holiness. It says that things like God is love, therefore he overlooks certain sins and wouldn't consider those things or that lifestyle as being sinful. We're like, yeah, I got that. There, I'm not going to say that there are sins that God doesn't hate, right? Well, obviously, we recognize that there are sins, but I want us to see that we can easily slip into this teaching when we try to justify our sinful behaviors. When we try to take, oh, just our little bitty sins, and we say, God is okay with those. I'm not doing anything major. I'm not, you know, committing adultery or murdering people or anything like that. Or don't you do that at all. There you go. Um, we we want to say that, oh, I don't want to talk against their sinfulness. I don't want to point out their sinful behaviors because I'm, I want to be loving. I want to be full of grace. And so when we have those types of attitudes, we have that mentality of, oh, my sin isn't that bad, or their sin is, I'm not going to address that in their life because they're not going to like me for it, or or they're not going to take it well. That's when we slip into this deceitful teaching of freedom from holiness. The second one I want us to look at, uh, I've called the moralistic fundamentalism. This is a teaching where they diminish the gospel by saying yes to the work of Jesus, but adding elements to it. They add things like confession, or baptism, or the spiritual gifts, or they add things like moral behavior. I know for me, in the church I grew up in, this was an easy deception to slip into by saying, yes, I believe that Jesus is our salvation. He died on the cross for me, but I also have to live this certain way. I have to have these, this checklist of do's and don'ts in order to be appeasing or accepted by God. We have this mentality that, oh, God isn't going to really love me if I don't do X, Y, and Z. This is a false teaching. This is a false gospel because Jesus alone is who saves us. Jesus, his work on the cross is what makes us appeasing to God. 
It's not our actions. It's not our moral uprightness. It is Jesus alone. So that's the second false teaching I think that we can slip into. The third one that I think is prominent in our culture at large is this teaching of the prosperity gospel. Now you hear that term and I know you automatically think of certain preachers and certain types of theology. You're like, yeah, I don't listen to those dudes. They're crazy, you know. They get all nutso up there whacking people with their jackets and stuff like that, right? Or they got big bright smiles and, and hold their Bibles up to a million people. The problem though with this gospel is that this teaching that God is it's so self-centered, that God is so for us, that he must give us abundant life he, or abundant like, comfort. He must give us abundant success. He must give us all these blessings according to what the earth says or the world says we should have. But we slip into this when we start thinking things like, God, please answer this prayer and I will do this. Or God, I have done my devotions perfectly for the last month and a half. Please say yes to this thing that I'm praying for. We say things to God like, God, I, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, so please do this thing for me. While we don't name it that, that is a version of the prosperity gospel. Another thing we can fall into, the flip side to that, is when God doesn't answer our prayers, we begin to question the strength of our own faith. Oh, God's not answering my prayer because I haven't believed hard enough. I haven't been good enough. And that's just not true. That's not the gospel. That's not what we see in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross so we must recognize that it's not really that difficult for us to be deceived by false teachings, by these evil spirits that John says are of the Antichrist or of spirits of the world, that they come in and they teach a gospel that's just slightly off from the truth. So I must ask then, when have you encountered the true Jesus? Perhaps you have never gotten to know him. So I would ask you then, this morning, ask him to come and reveal himself to you. Ask him to show himself. Say, God, I, he's talking about this Jesus that I don't know. I don't know this Jesus. Please ask him and say, introduce yourself to me. Help me get to know you. Maybe you have encountered the true Jesus, but maybe you've been deceived by some of these false spirits. You've been deceived by some of these false teachings. Ask the Holy Spirit then this morning to, to guide you and open up your eyes to where you've been off, to where your teaching has been maybe skewed just slightly. I guarantee you, if you ask him, he will answer those Let's continue on through this passage because we've got a chunk to get through as we see that knowing the true Jesus leads us into a life in love and a life of love. So starting at the end of verse 6, John begins to transition then into this moral test 
for this theology, this truth about the true Jesus, he says, here is now the test that you can put on your life to see if you actually do believe and follow this true Jesus. In six, the end of verse six, he says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Again, John states that those in God will love one another. He's, this is not a new concept for him. He's actually said this several different times throughout this letter. But here he begins to clarify not just that we should love God because, or love others because we're in God, but he says here, let me tell you where the love actually comes from. Let me show you its source. And its source is God himself. I love the way John Piper says it. He says, love is from God the way heat is from fire. Or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light. And fire gives heat because it is heat. See, not only is God the source of love, but he is love itself. This truth of God being love is something that our world has latched onto as of late. And it's kind of distorted this idea. We hear this truth of God is love and we want to attach our own definitions of what love is. So, the problem is, though, for us who have English as our primary language, we have one word for love. Other languages have multiple words for love. So we'll say things like, I love my wife. I love my husband. I, not my husband, but, you know, if you were a woman. I love my kids. I love so-and-so. But then we'll also say things like, I love pizza. And I love cheeseburgers. Now, hopefully, those are different types of love. I mean, unless it's a really good cheeseburger. But we, we don't have these nuanced uh, or these different words to talk about the different nuances of what we mean when we say love. But other, other languages do. Other languages have multiple words for this idea. And in Greek, we actually see there's several. But in the New Testament, there are three that are mainly used. There's more. There's about five total that are used. But there's three main ones that are used throughout the New Testament. The first Greek word that, they, that we use is eros. Eros is a romantic type of love. I'm sure you can think of words that, that come from that root, the eros. The second one is phileo. Phileo is a brotherly type of love. If you think of Philadelphia, right, it's the city of brotherly love. It comes from this root of phileo. The third one that we see is agape. Agape is actually the one John uses the most. And it's this love that is connected to God. It is a transcendent, it is a, a unconditional type of love. And John actually uses it 30 times between verses four, 7 of chapter 4 and verse 3 of chapter 5. 30 times he wants to get this idea across that this love is a great love from God. A love, this is a love that does not require anything in return and is not based on any merit uh, of the, the recipient. 
This love is not a feeling, but it is a way of being that displays itself through action. We did not earn or deserve God's love, but he acted on his love for us regardless of our love in return and in spite of our outright rebellion against him. Cody Carnes has a line in his song, Run to the Father, and it says this, and it hit me this morning. It says, as I was listening to it, it says, I don't have a context for that kind of love. I don't understand and I can't comprehend. All I know is I need you. This truth has so many implications in our life because God loved us first. Because he loved us first, we are freed from having to earn that love. And we're freed from the burden of needing to be good enough or free, and are free from feeling shame and condemnation for not being perfect. Because he loved us first, we cannot excuse simple behavior, but we can rest in knowing that we are loved even when we fail. This love should flow from us and permeate every decision and action of our life. You see, knowing the true Jesus leads us to this life in love. It also then leads us to a life of love. John puts uh, forth this statement here in, in chat, verse 11. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, he also, we also ought to love one another. Again, he said this multiple times, and he puts this forth as if it's an absolute. He's saying, if God loves you, you must love others. But he's not being legalistic in his command. What he is saying is he's showing the truth that Jesus taught him directly. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So he's not being legalistic in his demand. He's saying, guys, I'm just telling you what Jesus said. If you're in me, you will love others. Jesus demonstrated this throughout his years with his disciples by loving the outcasts and loving the broken, loving the sinners, and even loving his enemies. And the greatest example that he showed his disciples was, what, was him willingly going to the cross and dying. And even while he was hanging there, he looked at those mocking him and abusing him, and he said, Father, forgive them. I love them, and I'm doing this for them. The ultimate picture of love is Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And that's exactly what John is commanding us to do. It's exactly what John is, is telling us to do, is that we need to, we need to love people with that same sacrificial love. But he recognizes that our ability to love one another is not something that we actually can do on our own. In verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit I was going to have us jump to John chapter 15, but for time, we're not going to read the whole thing. I'll just paraphrase in that. Chapter 15, John, Jesus talks about being the vine and that we're the branches. 
and that that vine is what gives life and gives power to the branches. And the branches are able then to produce fruit because of their connection to the vine. And those that don't produce fruit are cut off and they're cast into the fire. And it actually says there in in John chapter 15, verse 5, it says, we can do nothing apart from the vine. John is showing us that our ability to love others is not something we can do on our own. It has to be something that flows from the knowing the true Jesus and having that love of the true Jesus in us and moving through us. Just like God is the source of love for the world, Jesus is the source of life and love for us. Because Jesus and John both teach us that on our own, We are selfish. We don't regard others or their needs. And this is why John and even Paul are adamant about this idea of abiding in Christ. See, when we are in Christ, his spirit helps us. He, He helps us to be less selfish. He helps us to look, to overcome our own sinful desires. He even opens our eyes to the needs around us in the world, to our brothers and our sisters and those who we would consider our enemies. He says, hey, I want you to go love them because I love them. So really, if we have confessed that our our belief in Christ and we have surrendered our life to Jesus, we are now filled with this spirit and this spirit is compelling us to go love others. Because the reality is, as John says here, no one has seen God. So therefore, no one can love God. But if we are, as we have been called to be, the people of God, those that love others, they see God in us. We then are the imago Dei, the image of God, not just because we've been created with these God characteristics of the Godhead, but because as we are compelled by the Holy Spirit, we become the image and picture of God to this world. He looks at us who call ourselves the body of Christ and says, they are the ones that are showing me to the world. And when they look at us, the question is, do they actually see that? When the people in this community and in the surrounding communities, when they think of Sacred Mission Church, do they think that is the image of Jesus on this world? You see, when the Spirit of God is in us, He overrides our inherent selfishness and He fills us with the power to be selfless and loving. Are we connected to the vine? We are to be more than just people that know and preach the truth, but people that act out the truth of God's love to the world around us. If we speak of the love of God and we, we know or we, and say how we love God, but we do not act on that love, it says we're hypocrites. John actually calls us liars. So Sacred Missions Church, we implore you to let us be people known not only for being about the truth and standing for the truth, but for how the world around us is changed because of the way we love people. Knowing the true Jesus leads us to life in love 
and a life of love. All of this hinges on whether or not we know him and are in him. See, this is the test that John gives. He says, I'm going to show you the true Jesus. Now, the test of whether or not you know this truth is if you love others. So will we pass the test? Let me pray. Father God, I am I am thankful for this truth this morning. I'm humbled by this truth this morning, and I'm humbled by the conviction that I know I don't love others like I should. Too often my own selfishness pushes aside my willingness to love others. It pushes aside my willingness to... Um, to sacrifice and to serve even the ones that I would consider brothers and sisters and even the ones that I consider my own family. So God, this morning I pray that you would help us to know who you are. You would help us to know truly Jesus Christ, God, and that that truth, that knowledge would be powered by the Holy Spirit to compel us to love those around us and would compel us to sacrifice and would compel us to be the image of Jesus to our neighbors, to our friends, to our community, to this world. God, we are so thankful for who you are, for your love and your grace and your sacrifice for us. God, we ask and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, the night before Jesus displayed his ultimate love on the cross, he established a way for us to remember that love, and to continually remind ourselves of that love and of the gospel, and it's what we call communion. So, this morning, as we think about knowing the true Jesus, so we think about knowing the true gospel Let's take this time to, to know and remember what it was that Jesus did on the cross for us. To know and remember how the love of God was displayed in the sacrifice of Jesus. He was that propitiation for us. So this morning I'm going to ask that you guys would, would pray about knowing the true Jesus, the Bible warns us about coming to the table too quickly, about coming to the table without uh, confessing our sins and, you know, just allowing God to work in our heart. And so I, I ask that you would do that this morning, that you would take time to pray. And then when you're ready, come down the center aisle and you can go to either side and they will hand you uh, the bread. Uh, and then please take a cup. It's a juice or wine. Obey your conscience there. But then when you're done, head back to your seat, stay standing, and we will all do this together as family.